Father, Your Word is truly precious to us. And Lord, uh, tonight as we open up to it, we come with expectation that Your Holy Spirit will teach us beyond what we could learn on our own. Uh, We recognize, Lord, that Your Word is living and active. It's a two-edged sword. We know it can divide out the things in us that need to be divided out. We know that it is decisive and incisive, Lord, and we ask that You will speak to us truth tonight and help us to understand and and truly grasp these things by your, Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for Your Word and our fellowship, and we pray Your blessing now, Father, on Your Word in our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them a procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving and a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep. At the sound of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Now I know we studied this already. Uh, A few Sundays back, uh, prior to my time away there on vacation, we looked through this, we read it, we considered it from David's perspective. And it's a great psalm, especially for dealing with depression, dealing with despair. You may recall we talked about this three-word powerful statement, hope in God. Because hope in God is not hope deferred. Remember, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But hope in God, that is the delight that is a tree of life for us. Hoping in God, because He doesn't fail us. Our circumstances may. You know, even hope itself. Deferring, hoping that eventually hope itself is going to bring us to a better place. It, It doesn't always work. In fact, maybe you've been there. You've hoped that there was going to be some kind of change in your life. And it's amazing. Human beings, we have this capacity to hope. The hope that life's going to get better. The problem is when it doesn't get better, it's that whole hope deferred making the heart sick. And so David realizes, and from his perspective, in a a place of deep despair and depression, he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. I shall yet praise Him. If my hope is in God... Well, then I have something that will draw me out of this place of depression. Now, I don't want to go over all that again tonight. In fact, I'm starting in Psalm 42 for a couple of reasons. One, you may recall that Psalm 42 begins book two of the Psalms. Five books in the Psalms, each one corresponding to one of the five books of Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
And so book two of the Psalms is corresponding to or corresponds to the book of Exodus. It's all about deliverance. And as we begin book two, the Exodus section tonight, we see something bigger than simply David. David and his perspective and the personal perspective that we talked about a few weeks back that each of us have, that personal perspective of hoping in God, there's something I believe that is bigger here. Because if you think about it and look at it biblically, David is representative of something far bigger than himself. David represents the godly remnant of Israel. David is that picture of Israel. The the people who God loves, who love their God, but who stray, as David did, but come back to the Father. And there is a great hope, and there's a great promise in Scripture that Israel will come back to the Father. And if you think, oh, Pastor Rick, you're on Israel again. No, the Bible's on Israel again. And the truth is, there are, there are very few major things that Christ wants us to get hold of. Only three or four things that Paul said, of this, I don't want you to be ignorant. And Israel is one of those. The rapture is another. Spiritual gifts is a third. I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. And so the Bible, God's Word, brings us back again and again. As we look at David here, we begin to, I think, see an emerging picture of the godly remnant of Israel. Deliverance and Israel go hand in hand, don't they? We know historically of their deliverance out of Egypt. There are two deliverances, really. I think once it's all said and done, we get to the other side of history and we're able to look back across the pages of history, we'll see two major deliverances of Israel, of this godly remnant. Historically, number one is out of, out of Egypt. Their deliverance out of Egypt, the Exodus, which has been up to this point by far the greatest deliverance of Israel. I realize they've been saved out of many different situations, but that deliverance from Egypt was massive and is still at the heartbeat of the Jewish people. They still cling to that moment in their history. 3,500 years ago, they look back to that as the time of greatest interaction with their God. Which is wonderful, and it's very sad. How would you like to have to look back 3,500 years to the last time you interacted with God the Father? And we don't. In Jesus, we interact with Him any time of the day, any moment. We can turn and we are interacting with God. He's there. But for the people of Israel, historically, that was the place. Their great deliverance that they cling to, they still have hope because of that deliverance that there might be yet another deliverance. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, you may recall, the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. They cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God, and God heard them. He heard their groaning. He saw what was going on. He paid attention. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God still remembers that covenant. That unconditional covenant He made has not been broken. Oh, perhaps by Israel. They haven't really kept their side of the bargain, but it really had nothing to do with them in the first place. It was a one-sided covenant. Unconditional. God said, I will do this. And so He remembered and He delivered them out of Egypt. But prophetically speaking, the greatest deliverance of the godly remnant of Israel is yet to come. It will be their deliverance out of the tribulation. The great tribulation that comes upon the world. Now, you know this. Bible students, our generation has witnessed one of the single greatest prophetic incidents of all history. And we have seen it in this generation, Israel's return to the land. Ezekiel prophesied it. It would be like like a valley filled with dry bones. 
And those bones begin rattling. And the bones stand up. Which must have been a pretty freaky vision. Think about it if you were Ezekiel seeing that. And God's saying, I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to put flesh and blood and bone and sinew. I'm going to bring it all together. But even at that point, a spiritless people, a people empty. And God says, and then I'm going to breathe my spirit out on this people once again. I'm going to fulfill my covenant. I'm going to give them a new covenant where I write my law on their minds and in their hearts. And He promised that would happen. A great deliverance. We have witnessed already the beginnings of this. It is not a fulfilled situation. Israel is largely secular. Israel is strongly self-sufficient. They have to be, or so they think, in the midst of the Middle East. They look around surrounded by the Arab nations who would just as soon they disappear into the sea, and they figure we have to be strong. And so the undeclared nuclear reactor remains there in southern Israel. And so their air force is unparalleled. And so their army is strong and willing and ready to fight. So all of their citizenship goes into the army directly out of high school. A fighting nation, a strong nation, a self-sufficient nation, not yet a godly nation. And I don't mean that to cast dispersion on the Jewish people. But there is something missing as they are, for the most part, secular. But in Psalm 42 and 43, we hear the cry of the godly remnant of Israel. Not just the cry of David, crying hope in God, but the cry of the godly remnant of Israel, that is those who have come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation, longing now for deliverance from the great tribulation. Great tribulation? Yeah, Jesus described that. He he defined it clearly for us. The tribulation is that seven-year period of time, and the Bible's specific about it, Revelation 6 through 19. Daniel chapter 9. There are other places you can go to check out the exact timing of this period. Seven years that is prescribed for the wrath of God to be poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. That's the tribulation. Now, the good news is, church, that we have been caught up. That we don't go through the tribulation. I'll throw out some verses. You can jot these down and read them if you're not sure about this. Luke 21, 36. They're up there behind me. John 14, 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. Actually, the whole chapter is great. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, where specifically the Bible talks about the church being pulled out, caught up to a place that Jesus says, I have prepared for you. And so that happens. And then... After that time, the tribulation begins, that seven-year period of God's wrath. And Israel is here. And Israel begins to, one after another, as the Bible declares Revelation 7, they begin to recognize Jesus as Mashiach. He is our Messiah. He is the one that we miss. We do need Him. And hope in God begins to return to the people of Israel. But three and a half years into the tribulation period, Three and a half years, something happens. The gears shift and it becomes what Jesus Himself defined or described as the Great Tribulation. Tribulation begins, the Great Tribulation kicks in. Three and a half years in, Matthew 24, 21, Jesus said, then there will be a Great Tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. 
And the elect that Jesus is referring to in that passage is not the church. We are an elect group by the Lord. But it's not the church that Jesus is talking about. It is Israel. The elect, His people. The godly remnant of Israel who have come to faith in Jesus during the first half of the tribulation. Now, are you with me on that? Some nods, tracking, okay. That's important going through this. Follow this through. Look back at the first and second verse again of Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That's the longing of Israel. Even today. But it will be far greater during the tribulation. A passionate longing to come again and and appear before God. A remembrance of the days when they were surrounding the tabernacle there in the wilderness. Where God encamped, was enthroned among the praises of His people. Where He was there and the tent of meeting was there. And the ark was in the tent and the Lord said, I'll meet you there above the cherubim. Between the wings of mercy, I'll, I'll meet you there. And that longing, that desire of Israel, when shall I come and appear before God? I believe you're going to hear. Well, maybe we won't. But the cries will be heard of the people of Israel. When can we come and be before you? When will this be over? When will this be done? Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. Who but the Jewish people can say that with absolute reality? While they say to me, note this, all day long, where is your God? Note that down in verse 10 it says, while they say to me, again, all day long, where is your God? This will be the taunt of the tribulation. Where is your God? Where is your God? He's obviously not here. He's obviously not helping you. Where is your God? If you think rebellion is bad now, and it's bad, the tribulation period will be a time of unparalleled rebellion where people aren't even unsure about the existence of God the existence of God, the Creator, the Powerful One, but where people know about His existence, but absolutely rebel anyway. Where they will look upon the powerful wonders that God is showing during that time, and they'll say, we don't want you. And they will refuse to repent of their sins so as to be saved, the Bible says. And during that time, the taunt... I believe that we'll be heard on this earth, especially to those who give their lives to Jesus, who become believers in that difficult day, especially of Israel. The taunt will be, where's your God? Where is your God? Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Now, this has been misunderstood by some. Deep calls to deep. It's been used kind of as a as a spiritual verse of, of the depth and wonders and the splendor and the... The joy of just being in that deep place with God. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about getting bowled over by massive waterfalls and waves and storms crashing over you. Deep calls it deep and I am wiped out by all of this. That's what David was crying out. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the tribulation. Wave upon wave of judgment crashing and rolling over the world. Seven trumpet judgments followed by seven bowl judgments in the second half of the tribulation. In a terrifying display of God's judgment, His wrath, again, on a sinful and Christ-rejecting world. Now, some might say, you know, when I hear about those, when I read about the bowl judgments or the trumpet judgments and I see how fierce and horrible and terrifying they are, are you sure we're not going to be here? (laughs) 
can, you know, can I get a witness? <laughs> can I get a promise here? A little guarantee here? 1 Thessalonians 5.9 God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ. And if you are in Jesus, you are set to be saved, not to go through wrath. God doesn't want to pour out wrath on anyone. But He will if the rebellion and the rejection stands, which we know it will in this world. And Jesus said in Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And he's talking about the tribulations. But he says, listen, stick with me, and I'll keep you from this. I will keep you from it. But the hope of the godly remnant of Israel, present there on earth in the tribulation, will ultimately and finally be, as we see in verse 11, a hope in God. It will not be hope in our nuclear power. It will not be hope in the IDF. It will not be hope in our ability to stand strong and firm in the Middle East. In fact, I've said before in here, I think Israel is going to get to a position of indefensibility. Now, that's just my personal opinion. But I think things are going to get so divided up and so broken down that they will be unable to defend themselves. And then as the nations come to attack, the salvation of God will be absolutely clear to everybody. This nation could not have defended themselves against what came upon them. Their hope will be in God. Hope in God. For I shall yet praise Him the help of my countenance and my God. Now, Psalm 43 continues in the same vein as Psalm 42. They are at least companion psalms. If not the same psalm continuing on, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Who is Israel's greatest enemy? It's not the Palestinians. You know, it's not Iran. It's Satan. Greatest anti-Semite in the history of the world is Satan. And by the way, where there is anti-Semitism, you will find Satan lurking nearby. Because that is his program. Go again, against, head to head, take down God's people. That's Satan's design. He is the great enemy of Israel, and they recognize the oppression of their enemy. Back in verse 1, they say, Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Now, David may have been writing this, sons of Korah may have, possibly another king. But when taken in the context of Israel, they will need deliverance from the deceitful and the unjust man. Who will that be? That's Antichrist. The deceitful, unjust man, who comes off as a man of peace, provides the, the solution to everyone. Here's what we need. We need peace. We need, you know, the Jews and the Muslims to get along, and I, I've got a plan that'll make it happen. And it's going to be a plan that everybody looks at and says, wow, this is the one. This is what we've all been longing for, that we might coexist. This is it. He's, he's brought it to us, the great man of peace. And people will line up thinking this guy is, you know, the cat's meow. I can't believe I said the cat's meow. I've never used that before, I don't think, in my life. But they're going to see this man. And they're going to say, he's the one who can do it. The seven-year tribulation, get this down, understand this, folks. The tribulation does not begin, it is not kicked off by the rapture of the church. That's not what starts the seven-year tribulation. It will be close, I assume, I think, but it's not what starts it. What begins it, Bible students? 
That's it. Yes. You guys got it. It's the signing of the covenant. Daniel talks about this in Daniel 9. That this man of peace will come up with this great idea, this plan of peace, a seven-year peace treaty. Oh yeah, for seven years we'll have absolute peace. No one's going to attack. You can let down your walls, Israel. You can be at peace. This is it. And he will sign that and Israel will sign this peace treaty as Daniel prophesied. Believing again that we can just coexist. We drove 2,600 miles round trip down to California and back. Had actually had a great time on the road. I can't tell you how many times I saw the coexist bumper sticker. And every time I wanted to pull over and vomit. And it's not because I don't want to coexist. I mean, please understand, it's not that I don't want to love all people, and it's not that I don't want all people to be unified and together, but it's sickening because the sentiment denies absolute truth. Coexist means you believe what you want, you believe what you want, you, 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 all, all these different faiths, religions, paganism, whatever, it doesn't matter, you believe it, let's just all hang out together. There is no truth. That's what coexist says. I saw hippies in San Francisco. They're still there. Driving in Volkswagen bugs, there was one that had flowers all over it. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow, things just don't change. And the bumper sticker coexist and had flowers and pretty and it was colorful. It's the most colorful one I've ever seen. And I wanted to vomit every one of those colors. <laughs> because it denies absolute truth. It denies a single Savior. Sticking the bumper sticker on a car says there is not a single way to God, even though Jesus says there was. In other words, Jesus is a liar. That's what that says. It proclaims the ability of all people to live together with all manner of religious views regardless of how irreconcilable their view may be to the truth. Yes, Dave? Where is Israel in all this? Where are they looking? Are they not looking at Daniel chapter 9? Apparently not. It's their book. It's not... Well, (laughs) Well, let me turn this back to you, Dave. Where is Israel in all this? I would ask the same question about the church. Why don't more people in the church know this? And I'll tell you why. It's right here. If we're reading it, we'll know. If we're not in it, we're not going to know. And the tragic thing about Israel today, and, and I say this loving the Jewish people, and having a huge heart for them, and praying for the peace of Jerusalem, and wanting to see the salvation of God's people and His plan worked out. But for all of that, the Jewish people are not studied in the Word of God. They're studied in Talmud, you know, in their commentaries, in the rabbinical teachings, but when it gets back to just plain scriptural truth, there are a few who could truly argue the book of Daniel. In fact, a lot of them have just taken the book of Daniel and they've said, oh, it's not really Daniel who, who wrote it. It was written after all these things happened, which is how they were able to say these things happened, because it was written more as a historical book rather than a prophetic book. There's all kinds of excuses out there. And the truth is, and Paul gave us the best answer, that right now there's a veil that is over the eyes of Israel. There's a veil over the people's eyes. And only, only when Jesus is accepted, only when the Spirit comes in, does the veil get lifted. It's only in our belief and in faith in Jesus that the veil goes away and suddenly people see. And so now we're in that place. And again, the deceitful and unjust man, they're going to cry, deliver us! Because three and a half years in, he's going to violate the covenant. And right now, right now people are getting ready to be deceived. I mean, it's like they're lining up in the world, preparing for the mass deception that is right around the corner. Daniel 9.27 He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, or actually one heptad, one period of seven, seven years. 
But in the middle of this period, He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now you read that, you go, whoa, that's kind of weird prophetic language. And it was to Daniel. And God told Daniel, I want you to seal this up. It's not for people to understand right now. It will be understandable later. When later? Well, after Jesus came and gave us the revelation that opens the key to Daniel. Helps us understand Daniel. And Paul gives us this commentary. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, specifically the day of the Lord, tribulation, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And that's the abomination of desolation. That's what Daniel prophesied about. That's what Jesus refers to in Matthew 24. When you see this happen, you're going to know. And Paul comes back and says, that's it. The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is the deceitful and unjust man. And so Israel will cry out, even as the writer of Psalm 43 cried out, all Israel will cry out, deliver us from the liar, the man of lawlessness, the deceitful man, the unjust man. Deliver us, Lord. In contrast to the Antichrist is the actual Christ. The real Jesus, who I believe is portrayed here in verse 3. Oh, send out your light. And your truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Well, Jesus said, I'm the light. I'm the light of the world, John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. And it's the light and the truth that leads us into the dwelling place of the Lord, that brings us to where He is, that draws us to His purposes and His plans and His work and His will, And His presence is the light and the truth that we know is Jesus Christ. And that dwelling place, you know that dwelling place is now, spiritually speaking, but it's then, in the greatest reality that we have even yet to experience, when Jesus will take us to the place prepared. He said in John 14.2, I go to prepare a place for you. I mean, listen to that. Be encouraged. I'm going to prepare a place And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, you may also be. You're going to be there. Verse 4. Verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the wire I shall praise you, O God, my God. He says in verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. And you see how it's tied in then to Psalm 42. And in a stunning turn of events, at the close of this age, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Himself returns. And the godly remnant of Israel will turn, they will see Jesus, they will be saved. They will be delivered. But it will be out of the greatest tragedy of Israel's history. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so they will look on me who they have pierced. 
And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the weeping, the bitter weeping of a first over a firstborn. Why are they going to weep when they see Jesus? It's the recognition, I believe, of the year's loss. Of what we could have had. 3,500 years on in this world. But we missed Him. And now, now here He is. It's going to be a joyful weeping. In deliverance. It's going to be a bitter weeping because Zechariah also tells us, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but you may recall that only one out of three Jews in Israel will be saved. One third. But they will be saved. And that one third, I believe, will be all Israel left standing at the end of the tribulation. And so Paul says in Romans 11.26, so all Israel will be saved. Oh wait, Rick, you just said one third of Israel will be saved. There will be one third left. And all of Israel, their living at the end of the tribulation, will be saved. Why? Because all of Israel that it survives the tribulation, they will all believe in Jesus. They will all have accepted Jesus as Lord and Messiah and King. And Paul says all Israel will be saved as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now Psalm 44 will now continue in the same vein. This theme of deliverance from a place of darkness, from despair. I think we're still able to look at this as deliverance from the tribulation, as a deliverance of the Jewish people. Now we're not sure when Psalm 44 was written. Um, We don't know if it was perhaps in the dark days of Hezekiah. And I mentioned that, and we'll talk about this more next week, but the next several Psalms, though they don't mention Hezekiah's name, most scholars think that he was the author. Or at least it happened during his reign, during his authority. So there's a connection to Hezekiah here, and it makes sense when you read these Psalms, that it may very well have happened during the dark days when Sennacherib of Assyria was coming down to destroy Judah. Okay, northern Israel, already the kingdom of Israel destroyed, taken into captivity, and the brutal Assyrians now have their eye on Judah, and Sennacherib is coming after them, and so the psalm is written at that difficult and dark time. Again, possibly by Hezekiah himself. But note this in the heading, it's a masculine. It's a masculine of the sons of Korah. Remember what a masculine is? It's a teaching psalm. Good. It's a teaching psalm. And so there's teaching here as much as there's prayer for deliverance. As much as there's an outcry, there's a teaching going on. It's instructive. So I have to ask the question, all right, Lord, how is this instructive for us? Again, I believe it teaches prophetically the cry of Israel out of the great tribulation. Now, Psalm 44, you can look at in three ways, three sections, really, three parts, um, looking at the past, looking at the present, and looking at the future. It begins in the past. You might jot this down if you're a note taker. Part one is remembering the past. Verse one. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days and the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, and then you planted them, and you afflicted the peoples, then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them, but your right arm, and your right hand, and your arm, and the light of your presence, by them you favored them. For you are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob or Israel. 
Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long. We will give thanks to your name forever. And the psalmist remembers the past. He says, wow, our fathers have told us the stories. We know about the Red Sea. We know about how you took out Pharaoh's entire army. We know about how you fed and protected and and kept the people in the wilderness. We know how you brought them into the land. The crossing of the Jordan. We know how you, you fought all the ites of the land. It wasn't our fathers who fought them. It was God. It was you. And we remember the past. And you can almost feel, as the, as the psalmist writes this, this surge of courage. I can see Hezekiah writing this as Sennacherib is, is bearing down. Hezekiah writing, Oh, we remember. We remember the great things you did and the power you displayed. And, and we're here because of you. And it, it does begin to bring courage and strength. And there's something in this for all of us. That we can look back to what God has done and draw courage from it. That we can have a stronger faith in our struggle today because of what I know He did in the past that I cannot deny. And I look at that and say, yes, and my fathers and my father's fathers were saved by you. And I know you were at work and I've seen you at work in the past. And so here in the present, I look back to the past and I draw courage for it. But some... Some tragically recall the past with complaint rather than with courage. I I think of um, a young man several hundred years before the writing of of this psalm, Psalm 44, in the days when the Bible says Israel had no king. Dark days and difficult times. The book of the Judges details that entire time. And the Midianites were oppressing the people of Israel. Israel. And so the Lord calls up an interesting character by the name of Gideon. And Gideon has this conversation, this ongoing dialogue with the Lord that's fascinating. His, his doubts are just right out there, right in the face of the Lord. He says in Judges 6.13, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? He says, where are all His miracles which our fathers told us about? I know about the past. Where is it now? You see, Gideon was not drawing courage from the past. He was complaining that they weren't getting what they got before. It's kind of like me when I go into a toy store today. Why didn't they have that when I was a kid? That's so cool. We just have blocks, you know? My kids, by the way, really enjoy blocks at Grandma and Grandpa's house. It was so cool not to be on computers for a couple weeks and just build things, you know? Anyway, side note. Gideon looks back and he says, Okay, I've heard the stories. Where are you now, God? He says, now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Let me ask you, do you remember the past like Hezekiah? Drawing courage from what God has done? Or do you remember the past like Gideon, complaining about what God is not doing? It's a very different way of drawing out of what God has done. In light of the past, Hezekiah glorifies God and draws strength in God's faithfulness. In light of the past, Gideon, on the other hand, complains of God's forsaking the people. And ironically, Gideon is complaining to God. Where are you now, Lord? Um, right here. <laughs> Standing before you. Where's your presence, Father? Well, 
Here? (laughs) What are you missing, Gideon? I'm standing right before you. In fact, I believe the angel of the Lord there talking to Gideon was Jesus. That Christophany, those Old Testament appearances of Christ, pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. And he's there. And he's face to face. And he's talking with Gideon. Gideon's saying, where are you, Jesus? It's amazing. I know we never do that. You know, complain of God's absence to His face. (laughs) Where are you, Lord? Uh, Here. We're talking, aren't we? He's present. And so where the past is concerned, remember this great, powerful verse, Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And if He was faithful to you yesterday, He will be faithful to you today, and He will be faithful to you in the future as well. Because He does not change. He is always there. He is always faithful. It's to Jesus that the voice of the psalmist appeals. There in verse 3, he says, By, it was your right hand, it was your arm, it was the light of your presence, and you favored them. Well, I see Jesus in that, who is now at the right hand of the Father, who is the Father's arm extended to the world. Jesus, who represents God to us perfectly, who is the exact representation of His very nature and being, the Hebrew writer tells us. Who explained God to us, John tells us. Jesus at the right hand. Jesus who is the Father's arm. Jesus who is the light of His presence. And it is through Jesus that God favors His people. That God gives grace. John chapter 1 verse 14. John says, We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. And in verse 16 John says, For of His fullness we have all received. And grace upon grace. So it's favor, it's grace. This is all through Jesus. And there's a hint here. Whether or not the psalmist recognized it or understood what he was receiving through the Spirit, I see in verse 3, your right hand, your arm, the light of your presence, your grace. By this, you favored the people. So while we remember the past in Christ, we recognize the presence of Christ in the present as well. And centuries... Even millennia of God's past faithfulness in Christ Jesus will, I believe, be a great encouragement to the godly remnant of Israel in the Great Tribulation. They are going to be able to look back at what God did through Jesus. They are in the darkest moments of those seven years. They will be able to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, think about it. When you came to Christ, wasn't the gospel a great, exciting thing? Didn't you just love hearing about what Jesus did? You wanted to hear the next story? And every story that was new to you was fascinating. He walked on water? Wow! You know, I know He resurrected, but look at this healing. Did you hear this story? Do you know what Jesus did here? So exciting. And the godly remnant of Israel are going to be right there in that place of brand new reception of Jesus. And I believe they will draw a great encouragement from it during a very dark during their darkest time. Now the psalmist turns from remembering the past to recognizing the present. This is part two in verse nine. Yet yet is a tragic word. Especially when you're talking about all the glories and the goodness of God and all of a sudden you say, Yet but however and he turns the corner and says, You have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. 
and do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us a sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. Yes, it's true. He has. And again, we're reading, we're reading verses here that are bigger than what Hezekiah could have been writing about. Larger than that. You scatter us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors. A scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations. You know, every time I read the word byword in the Scriptures, I think about the yellow star with the word Jude written in it, worn by the people in the Nazi Holocaust. You've made us a byword. The very name Jew being the subject of so many jokes. A laughing stock among the peoples. Verse 15. All day long my dishonor is before me. And my humiliation has overwhelmed me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles. Because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us. But we have not forgotten you. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. I think that could be debated. Our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us as in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. He says, if we have forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would God not find this out? For He knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake we are killed all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Israel crying out from the lowest place they have ever been. The dust of the earth. They're at the bottom of the barrel here. Israel's not at the bottom of the barrel right now. Again, they're still self-sufficient. They are still a force to be reckoned with in the Middle East. They haven't been in the lowest possible place before either. I recognize they were in Egypt and that was a low situation. And there was Assyria and there was Babylon and there was Rome, all low situations. And there was Auschwitz, the greatest tragedy I believe to happen to the Jewish people. A low situation. But the truth is... Israel will go lower. It's going to get worse than it's ever been. And I'm not making this up, and I don't want it to happen, and I'm not sitting here as a prophet of doom. It's Scripture. Zechariah 13.8. As we talked about a few minutes ago, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord. Two parts in it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. You know Israel's turned a corner. The Jewish people have. Israel as a nation have. They are now at the place where there are more Jews located in Israel than in any other single place in the world flooding back into the land as God prophesied as God said would happen coming back into the land by the time the tribulation happens which you know in reality could be any time 
Possibly at the beginning of the tribulation, there will be an even more massive flooding of the Jews back into Israel. That will be where the massive existence of world jewelry is right there in Israel. And I want you to recognize, we said this a few Sundays back in the Holocaust, two-thirds of Europe's Jews were wiped out. And that was Europe's Jews. In the tribulation, two-thirds of all Jews will be wiped out. So as bad as that was, and it was horrific, this will be worse. The surviving third, the godly remnant of Israel, will be saved. They will be witnesses of the faithfulness of God who said, I'm going to get you through. You've got to believe in me. But believe in me and I will get you through. And He will. And they will cry out as never before. Verse 26, Rise up and be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. And that's part three of the psalm, the future. Now the past, remembering the past and recognizing the present. And now in the very last verse, he concludes with this, this sense of the future, receiving the future. And you might look at this psalm and say, Wow, the first half starts so you know, gloriously. And the second part ends so despondently. Such a downer, you know? Such a bummer. The psalm ends not as a downer, but note this, with faith in redemption in spite of tribulation. This last verse is a great verse. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness, not for the sake of our military, Not for the sake of our strength, not for the sake of our religion, not for the sake of the temple that we have built. Rise up for the sake of your loving kindness. What does this say? It means this remnant of Israel will be redeemed. Why? Because they recognize God's grace in Jesus Christ. God's chesed, His loving kindness. It's a a cry for redemption. And the only place redemption comes from, and that is God's grace. Now, you may have caught this, but the Apostle Paul reaches into this psalm and pulls out a powerful statement. Turning your Bibles over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. He quotes verse 22. Verse 22, where the psalmist wrote, For your sake were killed all day long and considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Did you, did you recognize that as we went by it? But listen to the context that Paul takes that verse and places it into. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But hey, Paul is not despondent. Listen to what he says. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Paul doesn't see this verse as a downer. Paul says, yeah, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things... We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I just love that. Paul doesn't say, by the way, we're conquerors. He says we are overwhelmingly conquerors. He doesn't just say we're going to conquer. 
He says, our victory will be massive. It'll be overwhelming. It'll be uh, uh, unbelievable. Beyond description. Magnificent. Paul says the outcome, gang, of this war is decisive and the outcome is determined. And so even now, today, while we may feel like we're being killed all day long, while Christians in this day and age might feel like, wow, we're, we're like sheep to be slaughtered, at least every election cycle, <laughs> we seem more and more to be the underdog in this world. And Paul says, no big thing. Because we are overwhelming conquerors. The end has been decided, determined, and what Israel misses today in not recognizing their Messiah, they miss that decisive hope. That you and I can say, no matter how bad things get, and it may get much worse before we go, but no matter how bad it gets, we're overwhelming conquerors. We can do the victory dance now. We've talked about this. We can praise God on this side of the Red Sea because we know about the other side. We know where we're coming out. We know what God is going to do. So we continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We continue to petition the salvation of Jewish people in finding their Messiah. And by the way, to clear up any confusion, if a Jewish person comes to faith in Jesus now, they may be culturally Jewish, but they're part of the church. They're going home just like we are in the rapture. They come to completion in their Messiah, in our Savior, in Jesus, and they're saved. They're not held back for being Jewish. They take a step forward for receiving Jesus now. And so Messianic Jews throughout the world aren't just messy people. They are saved people who are going home in Jesus and who will be saved by Him. And they will be overwhelming conquerors as well. Now, watch this. Psalm 45. It's for the choir director. According to the Shoshanim, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a song of love. Psalm 45 is a wedding psalm. And you'll see this as we go through. Some think it may have been written for or by King Solomon. More likely, in the context of the placement of these psalms, it was written for or by King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah took a beautiful woman to be his bride. We'll talk about this more when we get to the book of Isaiah because it's the daughter of the prophet Isaiah who married Hezekiah. And we'll talk about her when we get to Isaiah sometime next month possibly. So, But note this. This is a masculine. I was kidding about next month, Spencer. We're going to be in Psalms for a while. Relax. <laughs> it's a masculine, again, one of those didactic teaching psalms. So what does that mean? It's more than a wedding song. It's a teaching wedding song. There are great truths in the psalm for us to learn as much as it was a song, a wedding song, for a king. And my friends, I'll just tell you right up front, going into Psalm 45, this is about the future wedding of the King Messiah. This is about Messiah's wedding. And I have absolutely no doubt, and we don't have to go very far before you're going to see this. The first clue is that it's written according to the Shoshanim. Well, what's the Shoshanim? That's the Hebrew word for lilies. It's written according to the lilies. Now that has wedding overtones to it. But you and I know the term is prophetically linked to Jesus 
whose song, Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 1, says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lilies, the lily of the valleys. Jesus is the lily of the valleys. And this psalm is written according to the Shoshanim, the lilies. And the second clue that kind of goes hand in hand with this, the traditions of the ancient rabbis and the ancient synagogues view Psalm 45 as messianic. They would read this and they would say, yeah, it was about possibly King Hezekiah, you know, historically, but prophetically, this is Messiah's wedding. Now, ask a Jewish rabbi to explain that. Brian, ask your Jewish rabbi friend, could you explain why Psalm 45 is a wedding song about Mashiach? <laughs> See what he says. I'd be curious. But this is believed in Jewish tradition. This psalm is a messianic psalm. Part of how that comes out is in a book called the Targum. If you haven't heard of the Targum, it's the Aramaic paraphrase of the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay, So the Hebrew Scriptures translated, but loosely translated into the Aramaic. So we have to call it a paraphrase. But verse 3 of this psalm in the Targum reads this way. Thy beauty, O King Messiah, is greater than that of the children of men. We read... Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. But they say, your beauty, thy beauty, King Messiah. There is recognition from a long time ago that Psalm 45 is a messianic psalm. Isaiah himself, and the reason I mention Isaiah, his daughter being married to Hezekiah, Isaiah himself may very well have recognized this. And this gets tricky, but if you, if you read Hebrew, which I don't very well, but if you look at the Hebrew wording, Isaiah 9.6 tells us, For unto us a son will be born. And the government, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The writing of the word mighty, the way it's, it's spelled out and written there, is exactly the same as we see it in the first few verses here of Psalm 45. And so it's thought that Isaiah looked at this and said, yeah, Hezekiah, great for your wedding, but this is a messianic wedding psalm. Let's get into it. I'll show you this. Three things to know. First, a mighty king. Verse 1. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon, or literally through. Grace is poured through your lips. Well, that sounds like Jesus. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. There's the word mighty, used in Isaiah 9.6. The same spelling, the same way it's written out. In your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness. Meekness? and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. This depicts a mighty king. And it's interesting, it is a wedding psalm, but we're not hearing wedding yet. What we're hearing is a conquering mighty hero of a king riding out in truth and righteousness and meekness. Why? What is meekness in there for? Well, that's... The self-description, remember, of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-nine, I am meek. And this king is meek. And the psalmist, don't miss this, the psalmist comes right out of the gate, just bubbling over with excitement. He just wants to talk about this king. 
And this king's coming. He says, My king, the mighty one, is coming. He comes with a sword. And he comes riding in victory. And he comes in truth and meekness and righteousness. And he comes with sharp arrows of judgment. And does that not sound familiar to you? Revelation 19.11, John says, I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And you have to ask the question, why are the armies in heaven wearing fine linen as opposed to armor? They should have armor on. Why are they wearing fine linen? Well, because they're coming from a wedding. Directly from a wedding. Revelation 19.7 tells us, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Let me ask you this. As we enter this psalm, does your heart overflow like that to talk about Jesus, your King? I mean, this, this psalmist is just exploding. He's so excited. He, he says, oh, my heart overflows. My, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I'm ready to write everything that happens at this wedding. I'm ready to, to proclaim out of my mouth everything that I've seen this mighty king do. Are you that excited about Jesus coming? About His wedding? Does your heart swell to tell the awesome things which His right hand has taught us? His right hand? Look at verse 4. It's interesting. If this is about King Messiah, Jesus, He says, Let your right hand teach you awesome or fearful things. Let His right hand teach you awesome or fearful things. His right hand, pierced, and now nail scarred, which teaches us of His great love for sinners of His overwhelming grace for all people who would come to Him in faith. His right hand has taught us many things. But, but it doesn't say us. It says, you let your right hand teach you awesome things. What did Jesus have to learn? I mean, come on, Pastor Rick, if Jesus is God, which I've heard you say before, then what can God possibly learn? One of the more difficult verses in Scripture is Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus learned. But, but Jesus is God. And if he's God, all-knowing. How can Jesus learn? The word learn in the Greek there in Hebrews 5.8 is montano. Montano means to understand or to know by experience. Let me tell you something Jesus had never learned before. He had never learned obedience. What? He never had to. What did Jesus ever have to be obedient about in heaven? He's God. You know? But He set that aside. He set the glory aside. He emptied Himself, Paul says, Philippians 2, and became as nothing. He became like you and me. And experienced, possibly a better word even than learned, experienced the obedience of a human being for the first time. It would have been... I mean, I know I'm treading on probably some thin ground here. 
Um, I don't want to freak anybody out theologically. But Jesus learned. God learned, experienced, if that's more comfortable for you, came to understand humanity because He became human. You might still say, well, Rick, I still think God already knew because He's God. Okay, well then, we now understand that He understands us completely. And there's absolutely no way anyone can say, God just doesn't know what I'm feeling. Um, God was human, just like you. God walked this earth, just like you. Jesus sprained His ankle. Jesus had flies buzzing around Him. Jesus had people mad at Him. Jesus was hurt physically, emotionally. Jesus walked as human. And so there cannot be any doubt as to whether or not God who created everything understands what every one of us go through. He learned obedience. He would obediently come to know by experience the pain and the consequence of sin. And that's something God had never experienced before, nor ever will again. The consequence of sin. Jesus was obedient to the Father and learned how painful, awful, and destructive sin is. Because He took our sin on Himself. And that, in my mind, makes Him perfectly suited to be our Savior. Now back to the psalm. Verse 5, verse 6 actually, the description becomes undeniably divine. Watch this. Your throne, he's talking to the king, right? Right, you're with me, he's talking to the king. Your throne, O God, (laughs) your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, Oh God. <laughs> Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Who in the world could possibly be being talked about here? But Jesus, who is God, but God, His God, anointed Him with joy above His fellows. I mean, this is absolutely stunning. And right in the middle, I mean, again, another question for your rabbi friend, Brian. Who is He talking about here? If not Jesus Christ. If not absolutely Jesus. And by the way, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 draws this verse out. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. He draws this whole thing out. Verses verses 6 and 7, Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 says, Of the Son of Jesus, He says... Quote, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is, in the, is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness, you have hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The Hebrew writer drawing off of this same verse and saying, yeah, it's about Jesus, of course it is. By the way, if God calls Jesus God, then pretty much the debate is over. <laughs> Right? Those who would say, well, Jesus is Son of God, lesser than God, but not God Himself. Well, God called Him God. Paul called Him God. Peter called Him God. John called Him God. Jesus claimed to be God, but if that's not enough for you, God called Him God. Alright? Are we clear on that? (laughs) End of discussion. The psalmist 
is talking to God about what God, his God, has done. Anointing him, and by the way, the word anointing is mashach, from where we get mashiach, the anointed one. This is written for and about our Lord, absolutely, our Messiah, our King Jesus Christ, and his wedding. And he is anointed with the oil of joy. Jesus must have been the most fun person to be around of anyone who's ever lived. The most joyful of any man must have been Jesus. I mean, little children were drawn to him. They're like, I want to hang out with that guy. He's fun. You know, people in despondency and despair and depression just wanted to be around him. So joyful was the countenance of Jesus. But Rick, wasn't he called a man of sorrows? And acquainted with grief? Well, yeah, he was. By Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, referring to Jesus hanging on the cross, where he knew more sorrow than anyone has ever known. But the rest of his life, I, I would, can you imagine just walking with him on the shores of Galilee? The jokes he would tell, the joy in his eyes, the delight when he saw people expressing faith. This was a man of great joy. Anointed with joy above his fellows, a mighty king. Why was Jesus the most joyful? Because Jesus is the most righteous man ever to live. And there is joy in righteousness. There is joy in holiness. We've talked about this. There's sorrow in sin. If you want to be completely happy and joyful, be righteous. That's where the joy is found. A mighty king. Number two, a marvelous wedding. Verse 8. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. Jesus loves good music. Verse 9. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Wow. The king and queen are now at a wedding unparalleled. The king is Jesus and the queen, the bride, is you and me. Sorry guys, I know that's hard to swallow. The queen. I'm the queen. Great. I'm the bride. Fantastic. What am I going to wear? Well, the gold from Ophir. What does that mean? That means that the bride will be beautiful, will be breathtaking at this marvelous wedding, will be stunning, standing beside the groom, our Messiah King Jesus. Listen, O daughter, verse 10, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. You want to know what allures Jesus What makes you desirable to Him? If you want to be more desirable to Jesus, forget your Father's house. Leave your people. But what do you mean? For this reason, Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24 in Ephesians 5.31, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am talking with reference to Christ and the church. Here's something to blow your mind. Do you realize that every wedding that's ever ever happened was a proclamation of Christ and the church? God gave us that picture. So that when he described our relationship to Jesus and our coming to him, we would say, oh, that's like a marriage. 
In the same way that Adam and Eve were one, the word akkad, which is the same word that describes the oneness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the same way that they're one, Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one with Him as He is one with the Father and the Father with Him and He with us in this incredible unity, in this marriage to the Lord. I'm, I'm doing a couple of weddings over the next two weeks. I one this Saturday and one the next Saturday. I'm excited about doing that. But I'll tell you something I've finally come to after years and years in ministry. I'm a slow learner. I've finally come to the fact, and I've told both these couples, and they're very excited about it, I will not do weddings anymore if I can't proclaim Jesus at the center of a marriage. I'm just not going to. I'm not going to do secular weddings. I've done a few in the past. I wish I hadn't. I'm only going to do weddings where I can talk about Jesus, Christ, and the church, because that's what the wedding ceremony is about. Even that is not about us. It's about Him. It's a proclamation of what He wants with us, of the closeness He wants, and gang, He wants to love you more. He wants to desire you. He does desire you, but we can become more desirable to Jesus if we will say, I'm leaving my Father's house. I'm leaving my people behind. I want you, Lord. Nothing is more desirable to a man at a wedding than a wife who's walking down the aisles gazing at him and oblivious to everything else. Cheryl was that way. <laughs> uh, don't ask her about that. <laughs> the most desirable bride is the one who adores her groom. And if you want to be more desirable to Jesus, adore Him more. You want to be more alluring to Him, look at Him as though you see nothing else. Like Mary, who was the adoring bride. She sat there. Mary, you know, Martha's sister. Sat there at Jesus' feet. Can can you see her there? Mary and Martha's house. And she's just sitting there. And she's gazing at Jesus. And I don't even mean in a romantic way, but she loved Jesus. And she's hanging on every word that came out of His mouth. And and you know what Martha was doing, right? Ministry. (laughs) I'm preparing. Lord, tell Mary to get up and help. It's ridiculous. Tell her, you know, she's... I mean, I'm up and doing all the work and she's just sitting there listening to everything you have to say. Come on. Let's get busy working for the kingdom. And Jesus says, Martha... Martha, you're worried about so many things. He says, you know what? Only one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen it. I mean, that, don't miss that. What was Mary doing? Nothing but listening to Jesus. Oblivious to all the work. And, now listen, I know ministry has to happen, and we need people volunteering in children's, and we need people working, and we need people doing ministry, and, and we need to minister to each other. But that's not why we're here. That's not the primary reason. So love God first and love each other. Adoring Jesus, glorifying God. Like Mary, hanging on His every word. That will make you more desirable to Jesus. More beautiful. More prepared for the wedding. So are you the bride who forgets her people and her parentage and her past for the sake of just absolute abject adoration of Jesus Christ. Verse 12. 
The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is, listen to this, the king's daughter, it's you, all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. I think the virgins there may indicate Israel. Ask me why another time. They will be brought to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus says, or Paul writes that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church, listen to this, in all her glory. The church, beautiful, glorious, as the psalmist writes, glorious within, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Beautiful there on the wedding day. Revelation 19 verse 8 says it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now if that's ever confused you, if you've ever thought, well wait a minute, so my actions, my righteousness buys me a good outfit? Is that No, that's not what he's saying. It was given to her. Her? The fine linen, the outfit, the clothing of the bride was given to her. And that is the righteous acts of the saints. What does that mean? It means the righteous acts of the saints were given to us by God. That the good works that we do were prepared beforehand for us to do in Christ Jesus. That every good moment I have, every good word I speak, every good service I render to another person is because of the power of the Holy Spirit within me. So even the fine linen that I wear that is my righteous acts, well, they're my righteous acts, but they are given by the Spirit of God working through me. And it's it's beautiful, this description of the bride, stunning, glorious within, interwoven with gold, her clothing. I call this, by the way, fine linen sanctification. That's what Jesus has called us to, fine linen sanctification. The linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Well, how how do I become righteous like that? The answer is very simple. Availability and adoration. In other words, make yourself available to adore the Lord, like Mary at Jesus' feet. Available to adore the Lord. Little side note, and this is kind of hard to say, but I think it's true in, in many cases that sometimes, rather than being available to adore Him, Instead, we put him off. Or we stand him up. Or we duck out on the date. And I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight. You remember the Brady Bunch? How many of you remember that show? I grew up on it. There was a show where Greg taught Marsha how to get out of a date. You remember that one? You remember what he told her to say to her date so she could get out of it? Very famous line from the Brady Bunch. Something suddenly came up. Craig said, yeah, you use that. It works every time. And so Marcia, who's asked out on a date by a guy who's kind of a dork, you know, she, he asked her out and she says, oh, you know, I'd love to go out on a date, but something suddenly came up. And she's off the hook. Until she goes to ask the guy out on a date who she wants to go out with, and he says, oh, you know, I'd love to, but something suddenly came up. <laughs> Uses the same line. And I think we use the line on Jesus. I was planning on being there, Lord, but something suddenly came up. 
I, I was going to come. But something suddenly came up. I, I know you understand, God. I, I was going to meet you this morning for devotion, but something suddenly came up. I was on my way to the door to go worship with my fellowship, but something suddenly came up. And you know, we see this. God is on to us. We see this in the Song of Solomon, which is descriptive of the wedding, of, of the luring of, of the bride by the groom. The groom says, Arise, my darling, the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. I'm going to paraphrase it. He says, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one. Come along. It's a great time to be out and about. Come with me. Come on, climb down the lattice. Let's go off together. Let's elope. And the bride, she says, quote, Let me see your form and hear your voice until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. And that word until is critical there. The bride is saying, let me hear you. I, I want to hear you. I'm good with hearing you, Lord. I like to see your form, you know, at a distance. But I'm not ready to run away with you until the cool of the day. And in the Song of Solomon, that interplay happens between the, the lover and the, and the, and the bride. And then chapter 3 comes along and suddenly the bride is frightened. It's the middle of the night and she doesn't know where the groom is. She can't find him anymore. And she goes running looking for him. Have I lo- What's happened? Have I lost him? Have you been there? You put off the Lord and you put off the Lord and you put off the Lord and suddenly you realize, where is he? I want to be where he is. Lord, where are you? And graciously, he's right here. He's just waiting. <clears throat> But I do fear that when it comes to our availability, and I, I am convicted myself, that we say something suddenly came up. Man, Israel has missed centuries, millennia of time with Jesus Christ. May we not miss a moment of time with Him. May we not miss a second of walking and being with our Beloved. Well, verse 15 says, They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace, that place prepared for us. Verse 16, And the place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. And this is wonderful. Suddenly, rather than the family you left behind, you're going to have your own family. That's what happens. A man and a woman, they meet, they get married. They leave behind father and mother. They cleave the man unto his wife and the wife to her husband. And they begin to have children. And now there's a new family. And that's what happens. In our betrothal, in our marriage to the bride, a new family is born of it. A mighty king, a marvelous wedding, and number three, a magnificent proliferation. Because the more we love our King Jesus, the more we adore Him, the more people will be born again. Because they see that relationship. The more people will fall in love with Him and be saved, just like you have been saved, just like I am saved. Your love, don't miss this, your love, your adoration for King Jesus will produce offspring. It will bring about salvation for other people, other believers, princes and princesses for His kingdom. Now I say, listen to that, note that, because it's not our hard work and evangelism that will do it. It's not our door-knocking campaigns. It's not our church growth strategies. It's our adoration of Jesus Christ that will attract people to Him. It's being in love with Him. That is the most powerful witness any one of us has. 
is to allow people to see how much we just love Jesus. And you're nuts about Jesus. You know that? Yeah, I know. Because he's awesome. Let me tell you some more about him. My tongue is a ready writer. I'm ready to tell more. I adore my Lord. A magnificent proliferation. You know, there's just something attractive about attraction. Something infectious about affection. When people see how much you love someone, they start to look at the other person differently and go, wow, it's kind of like the ugly princess. I mean, it's that story. Have you heard Rachel's story? You've got to tell her. Read me the story of the ugly princess. It's a great story. But it's the story about this princess who is ugly. Oh, she's ugly. But the prince falls in love with her and takes her off. And as he's taken her off, am I right? Am I remembering correctly? The people are going, wow, he loves her. We must have missed something. People see you loving Jesus. Crazy about Him. And they're going to take a second look. They're going to want a relationship like you have. Best tool of evangelism right there. Well, verse 17 closes out, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Now, Psalm 46-48 through are going to pick up with this promise. And what's interesting, we see the wedding feast here. The wedding of King Messiah and his bride. Psalm 46 and 47 and 48 are going to take us further with the promise of the millennial kingdom. We'll see that. The promise of Messiah's final victory on earth after all is said and done, leading right up to an eternity with him. And we'll come back to that next week. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, that we would adore you like that, that we would long for you that our love for you would would be so amazing. Jesus, as you said it yourself, that all other relationships, by comparison, would be like hate because we love you so much. And may this, Father, be the standard of our fellowship and of our very lives, a passionate love for you that spills out in an incredible love for each other. And I pray, Father, Jesus... Our bridegroom, would you cultivate that among us? Thank you for your word. Father, bless your people by it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.